So you've had read to you, you've had read uh, the some of the uh, incidences of um, what, what happened at, at Calvary. We've had an insight into what happened at, at the crucifixion. So most especially, it's really it's the words of Jesus Christ. It's the words of Jesus Christ himself uh, which interest us. And uh, obviously, um, you may have picked up in Luke, uh, he records three utterances of Jesus. And we find that the Apostle John also recalls, uh, records uh, three others. And then you find that Matthew and Mark add another one. And so we have a total of seven utterances uh, noted down for us in Scripture. Now, we can't be sure if Jesus said anything else. What we do know is that the Lord clearly wanted us to know about these ones, these seven. So, they're quite diverse, these uh, sayings. We have, we have uh, Jesus expressing his suffering on the one hand, then we see him expressing kindness, compassion. And so by looking at these, I hope to get a fresh insight into the character of our Saviour tonight. We use this word empathise a lot. <clears throat> we don't have sympathy anymore. Everything's empathy. The thing about empathy is it's supposed to be different. It's not just, it's not just having a feeling of compassion to someone. It's trying to enter into what they are feeling. And so it's felt to be a superior attitude than sympathy. But I think with Christ, it's really quite impossible for us to empathise with him. How can we enter in any way? How can we understand in any way what he went through? It is beyond human comprehension. But I do think I'd like us to go as far as we are able so that we can have a greater appreciation for what Christ did for his people. And in meditating on these things, uh, maybe our faith will be increased and that we'll be more inspired tonight to live that righteous life that Christ expects of us. So these, uh, these are the seven sayings, and they're from, obviously, uh, you know, the different Gospels. So the first one is, is from the reading itself, and that's in verse 34. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. So as you had that read out to you, you had, you had a glimpse. You had a glimpse of just one little scene in the existence of the Son of God in, 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 this, in this world. And we, we saw that everything hinges on this, this man, this Jesus of Nazareth, uh, hung on that wooden stake in the Middle Eastern sun 2,000 years ago. And it's not just any man, of course. He's not just any man. I mean, untold thousands of people have been uh, crucified, you know, in many different ways. And thousands, um, thousands um, will have been killed that way afterwards, and probably even today it goes on. But this man is special, and he's unique. Now, if you didn't know who this Jesus of Nazareth was, you, you'd perhaps have no reason initially to think 
He was anything but a normal man. The people see him bleed, and they see it's just like any blood. The people hear his agonising cries, and they think, well, this is nothing more or less than what is common for people put to death in that awful way. However, the people would soon come to see some strange events which will indicate that this man, who looks very normal outwardly, he is someone very important. Because while he hangs there, they will come to see the area thrown into darkness in the middle of the day. They will see a great earthquake. They will experience that. And then there is damage done to the temple, which can only be explained as supernatural. And let's not forget the things that this man says from the cross. Because in the middle of his tortured experience, this man, Jesus, shows such grace and kindness. So to, to the impartial observer, all these things combine to form evidence which cannot be ignored. There was a Roman centurion in the reading, and he realises uh, Jesus is the Son of God, and he's outspoken about it. He doesn't care of the risk to his job, perhaps even to his very life. Such was the power of this event that this centurion was compelled, compelled to speak out and praise God. Some people, of course, they are not impartial. Some uh, back in Jerusalem aren't uh, either. So there's this powerful movement to go after this Christ and kill him. And kill him. Jesus asks forgiveness for his murderers. And he asks that on the basis that they don't know what they are doing. What does that mean? What does he mean? It looks to us like they know exactly what they're doing. They know that the arrest and the trial of Jesus was illegal. It was flawed. To them it was so important to get rid of this man that it, it didn't matter if the law was broken. You see, they reason that God wants this man dead. They believe that. God wants that Jesus of Nazareth dead. And so they'll have, it, they'll have him killed no matter what it takes. They're doing God a favour. So they know they've broken laws, alright. But they don't understand the real significance of their crimes. They believe at worst that they bent a few rules to get the job done. But since God's on their side, well, even that's not a big deal. But they were killing the Son of God. They were killing the Son of God. They hated him. They conspired against him. They had him arrested and tortured. They even chose to have a thug like Barabbas released instead of Christ, Barabbas, just so they could murder this man. They didn't understand the full extent of this act. <clears throat> and so it was, Jesus makes this request 
to his father. He asked for their forgiveness while they were in the process of killing him. What grace. Now look, all the Romans, all the Roman soldiers, all the Jews involved were still guilty. Let's say the father, let's say the father forgave them for the killing of the Son of God. Let's say the Father forgave them. They each still had a lifetime of other sins behind them. They each went on to live lives filled likewise with sin. And every one of them, barring a few who maybe got saved, every one of these people will be resurrected to judgment and a terrible eternity. And so it's clear Jesus did not intend with his prayer that they would be all eternally saved. It's clear they weren't. But his prayer for them was still an act of mercy. The lesson from this saying for us is straightforward. Firstly, Jesus is setting us an example of a forgiving spirit. Secondly, we cannot demand that people who hurt us show repentance before we forgive them. And the Lord will only grant us forgiveness liberally if we forgive others liberally. Here's the second saying, and it's still from Luke. In verse 43, I believe, it says... Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Thou shalt be with me in paradise. Well, at the start, this ordeal of Jesus was aggravated by the abuse he was getting from this pair on either side. But God had plans for one of them. God was about to save him. Now you mustn't think, friends, that this man was better than his friend. You mustn't think God chose to save him because he wasn't as bad as the other one. That wouldn't be salvation by grace. Now at some point, and we don't know when, the Holy Spirit performed a work, a work of regeneration in that man's heart. That thief. And he suddenly becomes aware of his guilt. And he becomes aware of Jesus' innocence. He has his eyes open so that he can see that this Jesus is the King of Kings. Don't forget me, he says to the Saviour. Don't forget me. He knows he has just hours left. Hours. Jesus knows it too. Yet such is Christ's compassion that he wants to make the last few hours of his new brother's life on earth um, more comfortable, more bearable. And he promises him eternal life. Jesus somehow takes his mind off his own suffering in order to bring hope to a repentant sinner. What a great, what a great man Christ is to do that. He wants to 
He thinks it's worth the mental effort that it took to comfort the one next to him. That new man has uh, several hours of extreme pain ahead of him. And God, who has the power to lift that new convert off the cross and bring him immediate relief, chooses to leave him there. Yet, with this assurance of salvation in his heart, there would be, I suggest, a strange sweetness in his suffering. It's been testified of by uh, martyrs. There can be sweetness in the suffering. The doomed man, this man, obviously went on to suffer like we can't imagine. Crucifixion was very cruel. But he was present at Calvary, at the most important event in the whole of human history. He got to feel the chill of the, the darkness in the, in the, in the afternoon. He, he, he felt the tremblings of that earthquake. And he was the only redeemed man in history to literally die alongside his own saviour which makes me wonder makes me wonder if he'd have been given a chance to be removed from that place whether he wouldn't have decided to stay in any case perhaps friends you who belong to god you will be with god in paradise with me the word paradise uh, it refers to a garden the word means a garden, so no doubt, well perhaps when God raises you from the dead, you will emerge in a, perhaps a planet-wide garden, superior even to Eden itself. Perhaps that, that's what it is. If any of you are not Christ's, you, you could be with Jesus in paradise. You could have that assurance tonight because his message to you tonight would be very simple. It would, his message to you is just stop. Just stop. Pause life right now. Give in. Acknowledge your, your sinfulness and receive forgiveness. And then, friend, as a redeemed child of God, you can, if you like, put an entry in your eternal diary to meet up with that thief in the future and then you can share testimonies about what a great uh, saviour you both have here's the third saying from the cross it's in John this time and it's in John 19 and 26 <clears throat> John 19 and 26 you don't have to turn to these uh, brethren but John 19, 26, if you're taking notes, he says, Woman, behold thy son. And then he says to him, Behold thy mother. It's quite remarkable that uh, three of the seven sayings are expressions of Christ's mercy. He asked for mercy for his persecutors. He's declared mercy to a repentant sinner. And now he shows mercy to two of the people who he's been closest to in his life. 
At his feet stands his mother, Mary, the one who carried him in her womb, the one who gave birth to him, the one who breastfed him and cleaned him and clothed him and loved him. And she must now stand helpless as her baby dies in front of her. You ladies, you ladies who've been granted children by God, you have an advantage over the rest of us because you'll understand perhaps more than us what it meant for Mary's heart to be pierced, pierced through to witness her son dying like this. But Mary, Mary had previously declared that she was a sinful human being. Mary, shall I say that again? Mary was a sinner. Mary was a sinner. The Catholics will hate me for that. Mary said herself that she rejoiced that she had God as her saviour. And so I like to think that as she gazed up at her beloved son, she was also able to see a Messiah dying for her sins. I hope so. But no matter, we know that she would come to understand. She would eventually accept all the truths of his resurrection and his ascension and his glory. And she would become one of his disciples. We don't really know where Jesus' brothers and sisters were at this point. Where, where were they? But, but he knows that she needs caring for. And he places her in the care of a beloved disciple. And so she gets to adopt a new son. And John gets to adopt a new mum. And it means she'll be cared for till the day she dies. And it means that John gets the privilege of caring for her. We may not, not everyone has friends and family, as you know. But when we join the Church of God, we become part of the biggest family that there is. And we have a circle of friends that is unprecedented in its size. Now, Normal family members and friends can be annoying, maybe unbearable at times. So can fellow believers. They sometimes irritate each other. They sometimes disappoint each other. They annoy each other. They get angry with each other. And I could go on and describe more extreme conflict between the believers, but I don't want to go there. I just want to say that the family of God are brethren. We are brethren. And God expects us to love one another. Mary did not choose John for a son. John didn't choose Mary for another. Christ Jesus put them together 
and he expected nothing less than a mother-son relationship to exist between them. So let's make sure, friends, that we are making all efforts in that respect. We must love others despite their behaviour. And we must change our own behaviour so that we can be people who are more easily loved. Here's the fourth one. It's in Mark chapter 15 and verse 34. Mark 15, 34, Jesus says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus has been suffering in his body for many hours, but it's the suffering in his soul. It's the suffering in his soul which is the cause of his real torment. For every lash of the Roman whip, there were a, a thousand lashes within his soul delivered by his own father. Because, friends, the, the triune God had ordained this solution to man's sin before even the creation of the world. The Son agreed to become a substitute for all those entrusted to him. He who had never sinned and could not sin agreed to stand in their place to usher his people out of the way so that he could stand in the place of condemnation so that he could become as if he were sin incarnate. The Father, he agreed to be the one to dispense justice against the guilty one. He would perhaps suspend some aspect of that love which would keep him from harming his own son and suspend that in order that justice might be accomplished. God would break out all the implements of punishment and use them on his own son without mercy. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit agreed to do nothing. To stand back. To withhold comfort from the Son. To let the sentence be carried out to the full. All the while refusing to help the one that he had infinite love for. Well, friends, I'm just painting pictures. I'm just scrabbling around here, trying to paint pictures. And I've got to be careful. We can't understand what it means for there to be this, this violence within the Godhead. It doesn't make sense. But we believe what we hear in the word of God anyway. And it tells us that this act was both necessary and sufficient for our salvation. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus asks. It's an exclamation of great 
torment of soul, being left alone, being abandoned. Don't think that he did not know what he was doing. Jesus still knew what he was doing. He knew he had to go through all this. And if you're a Christian today, as I know many of you are, you have the spirit of Christ in you. Jesus did that for you. Can you get a hold of that, friends? And even seeing the depth and the breadth of your sin, that didn't put him off from claiming every one of them as his own and taking responsibility for them. The reason we tell people about Christ and his salvation is so that we don't have to witness them going to a place where they are abandoned by God. An, abandoned, an abandonment which isn't temporary. An abandonment which is endless. Here's the fifth saying. It's also from John 19. John 19 and verse 28. Where Jesus simply says... I thirst. So we have here now an aspect of Christ's physical suffering. He's had this ordeal at the hands of the Romans. He's been forced to march to the place of execution. He's been nailed to the cross. He's lost a lot of blood. He's dehydrated. How many hours he's been without fluids is hard to say, but now he's thirsty. It's just another indication to these people watching that this was a real man. It was a real man. And this man knew that escape from all this was not an option. He remained there by choice. And now he just wants a drink of water. You'll know, of course, that the suffering saviour picture was found in the Old Testament in the prophecies there. And so you will know that many small aspects of Jesus' life were prophesied all those hundreds of years previously. And this tiniest of details, I thirst. That was one of them. And so even now, in his last moments, the Messiah is, is pr providing evidence to show that he is the Christ. He's already been offered something to drink. There was a concoction which could numb the pain. And do you know, he refused it. He refused it. Why would he refuse some kind of primitive anaesthetic? Because he agreed to suffer. And he wanted it to be known that he intended to drink the cup of his father's wrath to the very last drop. Well he accepts a drink of something else. And this small drink. Makes it possible. To say just a couple more things. Number 6. John 19 verse 30. 
John 19, verse 30. It is finished. It's done. That last drop of wrath has been swallowed. The father, satisfied that the son has paid the full penalty, rests now from his dreadful work. And all the anger he had in store for his elect people has now gone. And at the judgment, all of his people, all of us who are his, will be declared not guilty. The suffering of the Son is now finished. The redemption of his people is finished. Satan's power of death that he had is finished. And the securing of eternal life for all of God's elect is finished. That phrase, that phrase, it is finished, it's originally, you know, just one word. It's just one word. Finished, accomplished, done. Psalm 22, you might be familiar with, begins, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This, is, this psalm, it's, it's believed to contain not only some of the spoken words of Jesus on the cross, but some of his inner thoughts as well. And it's interesting that that Psalm 22 finishes with a single word, Meaning, he's done it. He's done it. So that's the message, friends. He's done it. You who believe can be confident that he's done it. It's finished. The long record of your sins will never be used against you, ever. You've no need to fear death anymore. You've no need to be nervous about your eternal future because it's finished, it's done. He's done it. Those who want to become citizens of God's kingdom and enjoy forgiveness of sins simply need to believe the gospel of it is done. It is finished. People are required just to trust in the finished work of Christ and trust nothing else. Here's the final one, friends. It's from Luke 23, our original reading, verse 46. Verse 46, he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. The great event is about to end. The prophecies have been fulfilled. Redemption has been accomplished. The beating heart of Jesus of Nazareth is about to stop. And the, the Christ of God draws on whatever scraps of energy he has left to shout with a loud voice. And he shouts these words to his father and then he dies. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Now, you might think, you might think that what he meant was, you know, Lord, uh, my inner being is now about to return to God. Be ready, Lord, my spirit's on the way up to you. That is not what the scriptures say at all. That's not what it means. Because, I mean, Jesus' words 
on a direct quotation from the Old Testament again. It's from Psalm 31. And we know what it means. It speaks of entrusting yourself into the hands of God. That's what it means. It's something we could pray right now. We could say, Lord, we commit tonight our spirits into your hands. It means we're asking God to keep hold of us. That's what it means. Just a short while ago, the father was in a state of enmity with the son. And how wonderful it is now to witness this reconciliation. Reconciliation. Uh, I was cautious earlier to say that at any point the father stopped loving the son. But whatever horrible thing had been transacted between the two of them, it was now over. Jesus of Nazareth, the word become flesh, was now on the brink of death. And he uses his last words to show he was placing himself in the care of the Father as he prepared to enter death. Preachers can be too confident in telling you they know, they know what happened. Well, they, they don't really know. They just try. Uh, they, and neither do I, but it says he died. It says Jesus died. It wasn't faked, so we know that at least. The ancient world uh, portrayed death as a sort of waiting room, a sort of realm where people waited um, in, the, in the Greek culture it was called Hades uh, it just it simply means that Jesus died Jesus went to the place where every one of us is going friends we're going into the grave you shouldn't think it's a a place you shouldn't think Hades is a region hidden in the planet somewhere or in outer space the name's just an invention of the ancient Greeks it was the common language of the day, and the Christians happily just adopted it, continued it. It just refers to death. And what's crucial about this is, in one of those Old Testament insights into the very thoughts and prayers of Jesus, we listen in on the Saviour speaking to his Father in heaven, and he says to him, I know that you're not going to leave my soul in Hades. You won't leave me in the tomb. You're not going to let me suffer decomposition like everyone else. Jesus commits himself once again into the hands of the Father, knowing that he won't forget him, but that he will raise him from the dead in a very short time. And then, of course, the Bible goes on to tell us that that's exactly what happened God did not leave the soul of Jesus in the grave, but raised him to life. Well, we've, we've, we've heard so much from Calvary tonight. We've heard uh, many things. We've had an insight into the thinking, the very thinking of our, of our Savior as he died. And we've been reminded of the perfect, finished work of substitutionary atonement. So friends, I warmly encourage you to think more on Christ and the cross in the week ahead. 
and I hope in focusing on these uh, scriptures tonight, our awareness of these things will have been heightened a little. That in the days ahead, we'll have an even greater appreciation of the love of God towards his people and the great love uh, the great love he's, he's always had for his people and even um, the cost that he was prepared to pay to bring it to us. Amen. Amen.